Titus chapter 1 is where we are again. We're thinking now about what the man of God must be. Let's read the text again together. Titus 1 verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Let's pray as we get ready to think again about God's Word. Father, would you guide us now in this next hour? Would you be at work on our minds and hearts as we listen? Help us to listen well, to hear your Word for what it is, not the words of, of a man, but your Word when rightly divided and taught. It is, it is your very message to us, so would you... Watch over this time in such a way that I would say nothing, do nothing that would grieve your spirit or not be good for these men. And would you help us to listen? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is to characterize, in a positive sense, what is to characterize the elders of the church who are to be models of what should be true of all of us? There are six qualities that were given in verse 8. And the first one is this, the man of God must be hospitable must be hospitable. Uh, philoxenon is the word. It's an interesting word. It's a compound word. And the two parts have to do with love and have to do with strangers. And so the love of strangers uh, is what is in view. When we think about the meaning of this word, the, the, uh, the general concern that is expressed is that a man of God is someone who, who wants to help people in need. He has compassion, he has concern when it comes to the needs of people. And that includes a willingness to involve himself in the entertainment of strangers. Now, when you go back to the time of the Bible, first century days, um, you know, there weren't holiday inns. (laughs) Or in my case this weekend, uh, embassy suites. Those things didn't exist. Public lodging was often unsafe, undesirable. So Christians would demonstrate their love for other Christians by opening up their homes and uh, helping people in need. Especially that was true when it came to to traveling teachers of the Word of God. They would take men into their homes as men would come through to teach the Word of God and take care of their needs. And so the the elders to be a hospitable man. I think this is a quality that is, frankly... um, often misunderstood in our day. We're living in a time with the fracturing of families um, where people, and I would say the, the increasing growth of smartphones and all sorts of social media in our lives. While, while the promise is we're going to get closer to each other, we actually feel more isolated from each other. You've, you'll watch people even around a dinner table sitting, sitting right here and they all have a phone in front of them. And so we don't really talk to each other like we once did. 
TV's going, phone is here, computer's on. So in the promise of being closer to each other, we're actually more distant. And the result of that has been that now people want to turn the church into a place where preaching, for example, is diminished and small groups are more and more emphasized because we understand we lack human relationships. So the real emphasis is on community. Well, the result of that has been hospitality is sort of the gift of hanging out in the minds of people. It's, it's the gift of coffee shop meetings. So if, if you, and, and people don't know what it is to be content in themselves, they don't know what it is to be content in their families. So even, even husbands and wives don't know what it is to be content in their relationship with each other. And so they're looking for constant, constant, unstopping, unceasing involvement with other people. And so the mindset becomes, if you aren't willing to hang out with me all the time, you're not hospitable. If you don't have an endless stream of people coming through your home, you're not hospitable. That's not really what this word has to do with. This is when you see someone who has a genuine need, do you care? Are you willing to meet needs? Are you willing to meet needs even with fellow believers that you don't know very well? Do you care about other people? That's really what's in view here. Um, this may mean inviting someone into your home who's new to the church, for example. They don't know anybody. You recognize that. They're brand new to the church. You know, when the, I don't know if you guys have a greeting time or a time of interaction in your worship service, but, you know, there's that person who's new and not a lot of people perhaps are engaging them. Do you, do you make an effort in that way? And maybe even invite them over for lunch. Get to know them better. You know, introduce them into the life of the church. Or it may mean taking someone into your home. I think back uh, several years ago when uh, one of my cousins was abandoned by her husband, and here she has two teenage boys, and, and, and frankly, their home was a mess. And, and so my wife and I, and, and she had nowhere to go, and she was going to have to move in with her mom, and my wife and I had to consider, what would the Lord have us to do here? And we ended up taking her into her home for over a year, and got her a job at the church, and, and the Lord has done a wonderful work in their lives. But I'm not going to um, misrepresent the fact that it was a struggle for us. It was hard. Uh, our family was at a stage where our kids were getting older, and we enjoyed that time <laughs> um, with our family. And so now we were going to disrupt the entire family, as it were, to take care of someone. We, we believe the Lord would have us to do that at that time. And it, it was even a good teaching opportunity for our children. Uh, that we don't live selfish lives. We care about the needs of others. So are you, are you learning this? This relates a little bit to that first quality that we talked about, what we're not to be, which is arrogant. Uh, because when you think about hospitality in the New Testament, you're talking not just about taking care of people that you naturally, naturally relate to, but people that you may find it even hard to relate to them but you have a heart of compassion toward them. So you're not seeing yourself as proud, right, that I'll hang out with people that I think I enjoy, but you humble yourself and you realize the Lord met you when a stranger, so to speak, and has had compassion upon you. Now you're to have compassion for others. A few things we consider this quality. This is something that should characterize the entire church. We want our churches to be hospitable places, communities. 
Romans 12.9 says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So in this series of exhortations included in that is to the church. Seek to show hospitality. Love strangers. Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So this should characterize the entire church. Second, this is something that we should do willingly. So if we're doing, if, we're, if we think we're being hospitable, but we are complaining every step of the way, if we think we're being hospitable, but we do what we do begrudgingly, um, that's not how it's to be done. 1 Peter 4.9 says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Don't you love this? You know, the Bible doesn't address imaginary issues, does it? Uh, the Bible's so real with us. So when, when Peter writes, show hospitality to each other without grumbling, he acknowledges that reality that sometimes we, we meet the needs of others, but we're complaining along you know, every step of the way as we do it. So do it without grumbling. Do it joyfully. This is also something we must seek to do. We heard that a moment ago in Romans 12, 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So it's not waiting to be called upon, but there's an alertness to this. I have my eyes open. I have my you know, antennas up. I'm, I'm looking for opportunities where people have need and we can meet that need. Our Lord taught us about this. Luke 14, verse 12, He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner, a man had invited our Lord into his home, He says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That's what I meant a moment ago. I also want to talk about how we misunderstand hospitality. Most of the time, when you think about hospitality as it's commonly thought of in our churches, it's hanging out with your friends. It's hanging out with the people you want to hang out with. But when you talk about what hospitality really is, it's, it's looking out for those that no one else would invite that no one wants to spend time with, perhaps, from a worldly point of view, people in need. So this is what we, as men, ought to be characterized by, tender hearts toward people who have needs and a willingness to inconvenience ourselves, to open up our lives, open up our homes, open up our schedules to meet the needs of people. And it's something the entire church should be characterized by, and it's something that we're not passive about, we're intentional about, we're looking for the opportunities where this can happen. Just ask you before we move on, when's the last time you joyfully embraced inconvenience to meet the need of somebody else? You were inconvenienced to meet a need, and you did it joyfully. 
you wanted to. That's the quality we, we need to learn. Must be hospitable. Second, must be a lover of good. A, a man of God is a lover of good. Which is to say, we love what God approves. Who determines what is good? God determines what is good. Good by His standards. Which means we're not talking about you know, good drawn from our imaginations. I'm to be a lover of good, so what do I think is good? No. I'm a lover of what God has identified as good. What God says is good, that's what I love. That's what I love. What God would approve of in the spiritual realm, that's what I love. What God would approve of in the moral realm, that's what I set my heart on. This also includes, I'll talk about this in a moment, I'm a lover of people who love good. So this is where my loyalties lie. With lovers of good, people who love good, people who love God. To be a lover of good begins in our thinking. Begins in our minds. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If you're going to be a lover of good, your mind is going to dwell on good things. And that means you're going to meditate on the Word of God. If you want to be a man who really knows what is good, you're able to identify what is good, you're going to set your heart on what is good, you're going to be a man whose mind is saturated with Scripture. Got to know the words of God. And you've got to meditate on the words of God. You measure everything by the Word of God. This is how you discern good from evil. What does the Bible say about it? And so then you're going to set your affections on what pleases God. What God loves, you want to love. Psalm 1, verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Don't forget that word delight. His delight is in. The law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. What's the last thing you go to bed with on your mind? How many people stare into a TV screen right until they fall asleep? Or they're checking email or whatever the case may be, right until they fall asleep. What's the last thing on your mind? Meditate on the word of God day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So a lover of good delights in good and God's law is good. Right? A lover of good. Well, what is God's law? It's good. And so you meditate on it day and night and your mind's saturated with it. Romans 7.12 says, So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So to love good begins in the mind. To love good, though, can't stop with the mind. To love good continues in practice. The believer is to be characterized by good works. In fact, we've been saved unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in those things. So we're not just a hearer of the Word of God. 
an admirer of the Word of God. We're to be doers of the Word of God. And it's the doer who's blessed in his doing. So you say, I read my Bible regularly. I think about it quite often. Maybe even I memorize it. But now let me ask you, are you striving to practice what you're learning? Are you walking in it? A lover of good is someone who doesn't just know the good. They pursue it. Philippians 4.9 says, What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. What you've learned from me, Paul says, practice it. What you've received from me, Paul says, practice it. What you've heard from me, live it. What you've seen in me, practice it. Practice it. God will bless you. This is, this is what discipleship is too, guys. And we need to learn this both on the discipler side and on the disciple side. Discipleship involves instruction, but it also involves modeling. Discipleship is life on life. Discipleship is knowing somebody and them knowing you so that you're not just teaching them information, you're influencing them by the way you live. And you're able to say, as Paul said, what you've seen in me, practice these things. That's discipleship. What you've heard from me, what you've received from me, what you've learned from me, that's instruction. But what you've seen in me, this is involved too. So life-on-life relationships, this is how discipleship is done. And we're exhorting people to live out what they see. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it, practice the fear of the Lord. The words of God. These people have good understanding. And then I referenced it earlier, but Hebrews 5.14 says, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained, listen, by constant practice. You want to know where discernment comes from? How people become discerning, wise people? It's not just that they have learned truths is that they practice those truths. And as you walk in truth, as you, as, you, as you test everything by truth, okay, I've got decisions to make. I'm going to actually have to make a decision here. And now I'm going to test this by the truth of God's Word. I'm going to make my choices based on the truth. The more you do that, the more you're able to figure out what God would be pleased with and what He would be displeased with. What fits with Scripture and what doesn't fit with Scripture. Sometimes you don't have a, you know, a black and white verse quotation <clears throat> to deal with a certain situation. But if you know the Word of God well enough, you know what fits with Scripture and what doesn't. So all the time we get questions you know, in church about, well, what do I do about this? Well, there's not a verse for that, for that specific thing you're asking about. But now, based upon the principles of Scripture, how should this be addressed? So to love good begins in the mind, but to love good continues in the practice. I've got to walk in what is good. And by the way, a commitment to what is good precedes growth in what is good. Commitment to what is good precedes growth in what is good. Do you want to know the good? And do you want to practice it? Do you know that's going to determine whether or not you learn it? 
put it in the language of James, a double-minded man won't receive anything from the Lord. When you ask for wisdom, let him ask in faith. Let him ask believing. Because a double-minded man is not going to receive anything from God. What what does he have in mind there with a double-mindedness? I think at least a part of what he has in mind there is someone who has sort of this sort of attitude. I'll, I'll listen, and then I'll determine whether or not I want to do it. I'll listen to the counsel you have for me, God, and then I'll make up my mind whether I want to do it or not. What's God's response to that kind of attitude? When you get ready to listen, I'll talk to you, right? (laughs) When you get ready to do it, I'll reveal it to you. You'll learn it. So sometimes we dishonor God by treating Him as if He's one of our peers. His word is not authoritative to us. It's not the final word. It's just like counsel we kind of listen to. and We'll make up our mind whether we want to do it or not. No, that's, that's not a lover of good. 2 Peter 1.5 says, For this very reason, take a step back and just say this real quickly. This is not just about attitude. This is also about a preparation to receive God's word. When I think about commitment to good preceding growth in good, Okay, a part of that commitment to what is good is I'm willing to take action on what God has already revealed to me so that I'm prepared to receive more. So this involves putting away the things that get in the way of my hearing, putting away sin so that I'm ready to receive truth implanted in my heart. Right? 2 Peter 1, listen to this. For this very reason, verse 5, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, moral excellence. Peter says, okay, you're in the faith. You've received faith from God. Now you add to your faith moral excellence and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these things, these qualities, is so nearsighted that he's blind. Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So he he maps out what growth looks like. And it's adding, adding to these things. Adding to faith. And and the very next thing he says, moral excellence. I've got to be committed to the good. Putting away what's evil. Putting away what's sinful. And add to that knowledge. And knowledge, self-control. And self-control, godliness. And godliness, brotherly kindness. And all these things are, are adding. But... But when I'm not walking in these things, he says, I can get to a point where I am nearsighted unto blindness. I am nearsighted. So I can read, thank God, easily, but some of you are blurry. So what is nearsightedness? What's up close to me is clear. What's at a distance from me is not. What happens in the spiritual realm when I'm not believing God's words and I'm not walking in truth? Is what is up close to me, this temporal world, that is like real to me. And what's at a distance, the promises of God that have to do with eternity, they become more and more unclear to me, more and more blurry, more and more like it's not real. So the only way, you know, to have eternity up close to you, eternity clear to you, 
is you have to take the words of God into your mind, walk in those things with your feet, and be committed to those things from your heart so that you're doing the work necessary to keep on receiving what allows you to pursue the good. So a commitment to good precedes the reception of it. James 1.21 says, Therefore, putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness, with humility. I'm, I'm coming to the Word of God humbly, submitted to it. The implanted Word, which is able to save your souls. Put away filthiness, put away wickedness, and receive now humbly the Word of God. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. I'm ready to hear it. I'm not going to argue against it. I'm not going to be angry by it. I'm going to walk in it. That's how you grow. John 7, 17 says, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Jesus says, You want to know whether my words are from God or not? Well, are you willing to do God's will? Because if you're willing to do God's will, you'll know where my words come from. So the readiness to walk in good precedes the growth in good. So the mind, the walk, the willingness, and all this shows up in loyalty. A lover of good is loyal to God, loyal to His people. This is how we explain many of the imprecatory psalms. You ever read those psalms that are like asking God to curse people and judge people? And you wonder, how does this, how does this work into the idea of compassion and care about souls and evangelism and really what's being expressed in many of those psalms is loyalty. God, you are my God and I stand with you and I stand with your people in this world. That's what they express. Psalm 139 verse 19 says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you. See, this is what bothers the psalmist. They speak against you. With malicious intent, your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. He's not talking about whether we ought to evangelize people or not. He's talking about where his loyalties are. Here's what's disturbing oftentimes in the church is that we claim to love God. But I don't know how much loyalty we show to God. And I don't know sometimes how much loyalty we show to our brothers. Psalm 119, verse 63. I am a a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. These are my friends. These are my companions. Psalm 15, verse 4 says, In whose eyes, the, the man who can dwell in God's tent, here's the kind of man this is, in whose eyes... A vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Clear loyalty distinction. So, do we not have a love for lost people? Does God have a love for lost people? He does. Do we not have a love for lost people? We do. But do you know the reality in your heart of being able to love someone you despise? You despise their ways, but you love them. You love them not as an enemy, but in that sense, in the context of evangelism. They're your mission field. But in the context of loyalty, they are enemies of God, and therefore they're not your companions. 
So there's the difference between a friendship for the person of winning someone to Christ and a friendship just because they're your companion. And as God's people, we're to be learning our companions are our brethren. The world is our mission field. And I do form friendships there. I can generally even like someone and enjoy their personality, but I never forget. See, this is, this is faithfulness to God and faithfulness to my brothers and even faithfulness to the lost in a sense. I never forget what their spiritual condition is. If I can spend all kinds of times with, with, with a lost man and he never hears from me the truth of the gospel, what kind of a friend am I? This man is on his way to hell. And I never mention the name of Jesus? And I never tell him the good news of the gospel? What kind of a friend would I be? So even my, my true friendship to the lost in evangelism requires this distinction in loyalties. I can't ever forget what realm he's in. So we're to be men who love good. Hospitable, loving what is good. Third quality, sensible. Sensible. Interesting word, sophron is the word. Uh, the ESV translates this self-controlled. So the American Standard says sensible. ESV says self-controlled. They don't, they don't sound the same, do they? Sensible, self-controlled, that doesn't sound the same. But actually the reason why you could have this difference in translation is both aspects of meaning are found in this word. This is someone, I think I'll help you put the two together. This is someone who thinks carefully about life, therefore they live life carefully. So soundness of mind that is then reflected in self-controlled choices. I don't live my life haphazardly. I don't live my life carelessly. I don't live my life dangerously. I don't live my life disobediently because I'm thinking straight. So the sensible life is the self-controlled life. That's what's in this word. Greek lexicon has this, pertains to being in control of oneself, prudent, thoughtful, self-controlled. The Hellenic model is avoidance of extremes and careful consideration for responsible action. So you're thinking about how can I live responsibly here? So it involves the thinking, but it gets expressed in in careful living. Thomas Lee and and Hayne Griffin said, self-control includes mastery of his mind, his emotions, his words, and his deeds. This positive trait is stressed in Titus as applicable to all Christians generally. MacArthur says, sophro, insensible, is another compound word formed from sozo, to save, and friend, mind, and describes a person who is sober-minded and cool-headed, In Paul's parallel list of pastoral qualifications, the word is translated prudent. Are you a disciplined thinker? Are you watching carefully over what you think? Are you allowing God's word to rule over your affections? What is going to to determine uh, what your heart's committed to? Is that getting out of your thinking? Are you logically, are you reasoning your way through life so that your heart's direction, commitments... Is being ruled over by truth. And then is that showing up in you carefully thinking about responsible living? How do I live this out? That's what we're to be characterized by. So think about how these things are connecting. So you have a person willing to do good. That's hospitality. He's a lover of good. And and then he's someone who's able to stay focused on what is good. In, his, in, his, in careful thinking. Fourth, an elder 
A man of God must be upright. The word is just in the New American Standard. Just. Dikaios is the word. Again, the lexicon has this, pertaining to being in accordance with high standards of rectitude. Upright, just, fair. In Greco-Roman tradition, used of a person who is one who upholds the customs and norms of behavior, including especially public service, that make for a well-ordered, civilized society. So this is a person who lives in an upright manner in every realm of life. And this means you're not just thinking about what is good according to the Word of God. So your standards are not determined by the, by the culture, but by Scripture. But at the same time, God's good Word reminds you that you're to care about what is good in the sight of all men. So I'm not just obeying the, the direct commands of Scripture. I'm also thinking, what is, what is a good testimony in society as a whole? I want to be, as the lexicon says, I want to be a, an upright citizen. I want to be someone who serves God well in the public realm. That's in this word, just. This particular word, this adjective is used only here in the New Testament, so it's just used here. But when you consider the word group... The idea of fairness, justness emerges. So someone who conducts himself in a way that's right, treats others in a way that's right, and decides matters, if you're in places where you have to execute judgments, you decide matters in a way that's fair, just. Uprightness here, uprightness there, uprightness in matters of justice. Are you a good citizen? Are you a good employee? When you go to work... If you're not the boss, if you are the boss, are you a different boss because you know Jesus? If you're not the boss, would people at your job say, this is is the best worker we have? I'm not talking about your ability. Those are determined by God. I'm talking about your effort. I'm talking about your trustworthiness. I'm talking about your punctuality. I'm talking about whether you finish things. I'm talking about whether you're supportive of the people you work for. I'm talking about what kinds of words you use with fellow employees, about the people you work for. I'm thinking about all of those sorts of things. Would someone say, you are a good employee? I mean, just by the common standards of men, you rise to the top. When they look at us as citizens in this country, we've been under all kinds of presidents. And if the Lord tarries, we're going to be under all kinds of presidents. Some you like, some you don't. Some are, all of them, mostly are, I should say mostly. I mean, they're wicked men. The conservative ones are wicked. The liberal ones are wicked. We, we, we serve our God in a country that's not the kingdom of Jesus. But are we model citizens? Because this is what Christians are to be characterized by. We think about what's appropriate in the world, in our conduct. In a way, listen, in a way that argues for the gospel in a way that adorns the gospel, in a way that makes clear that we, we're, we're servants of Christ. You know, the Bible puts a lot of emphasis on this. 1 Peter 2.11 is just one example. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, this is not your home, you're a pilgrim passing through, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, 
They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, guys, I, I hate to tell you, but Donald Trump or Barack Obama, neither one of those guys would have been as hard to serve under as Nero. And Christians are being taught in the first century to honor the emperor. Be a model citizen. I think about the blessing that Joseph was in Egypt. This is a man who loves God. But Pharaoh doesn't love God. And yet here is Joseph, basically second highest in command. How did he get there? He's useful. I mean, by common standards, this guy, we want him. He loves God, unmistakably. Think about Daniel in Babylon. Again, here's a guy who's greatly used in a secular culture, who's clearly a God lover. I mean, he suffered for his commitments to his God. But he rises in the ranks, and here he is having all kinds of influence because even lost men recognize there's something different about this man. That's in this idea of of justness, uprightness. Romans 12, uh, 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil. We give thought, give thought, give thought. Think about this, to do what is honorable in the sight of all. What do men find honorable? Now, you need to think about that. You want to live in a way that's a clear testimony for Christ. I think about Paul, I'm not going to read this, but in 2 Corinthians 8, he describes how they were carrying this offering from the churches for the poor saints in Jerusalem and how careful they were to have messengers accompany the gift and all that because they wanted to do what they did above reproach. Didn't want anybody to be in a position where they had to question what they were doing from the standpoint of integrity. That's what's in this this particular quality. So we think about uprightness in the world. Now we think about uprightness toward other people. Rightness means we treat people right. Read it a moment ago in Romans. You see it again in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Galatians 6.10 says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let the way you treat each other in this church be a testimony to your community for what it means to love people, but, but also do good to everybody. Proverbs 3.27 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it's due when it's in your power to do it. You have the ability to do good for someone? Don't withhold that. I mean, it could be as simple as, you know, remembering to get the payment to the guy who mows your yard. You you weren't there when he showed up, and now he's left, and the yard is mowed. I wonder, does that guy need his money? Yeah, you can let it go for two weeks or the next month, and you'll catch up when that happens, but does that guy need his money? The guy's out mowing grass. So how about picking up the phone and calling him and saying, hey, I, I imagine you need your money. Can I get this to you? Is there someplace I can meet you and... I mean, you have the opportunity to do good. Are you going to do it? Those sorts of things, you know. 
just caring about others. This is uprightness. This is living as a model citizen in the world. One of the things I fear, we rightly understand that Christianity is not moralism, but I fear that we forget Christianity is moral. It's not moralism, but it is moral. There's something to be said about being a, I'm going to use this language carefully, but about being a good person. Do you live a good life? Are you, are you a lover of good? Does this get expressed in uprightness now? So I'm living this upright life. Even, even by the common standards of men, it's upright. And this, of course, comes into matters of judgment. Do you, if you're in a position where you have to render judgments, do you do it fairly? Do you do it objectively? Do you do it without respect of persons? Can people trust you to just tell the truth when it comes to those things? Leviticus 19.15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Isn't it amazing how the common debates in our culture are clearly spoken to in Scripture? We just don't listen to Scripture. So the whole social justice thing going on right now, right? That the godly thing to do is to empower the poor because they've been so mistreated for so long. And yet, isn't it interesting, in Leviticus 19.15, it says, you shall not be partial to the poor. But neither shall you defer to the great. See, what matters here is what's right. Do what's right, whether someone's poor or rich. Can you just do what's right? See, we get it all mixed up. We, we think right is somehow robbing from the rich to enrich the poor, as if that's right. <clears throat> Proverbs 24, 30, 23 says, These also are sayings of the wise. Partiality in judging is not good. How can this play out in the, in the church? James chapter 2 addresses it. Again, I won't read it. You know the passage. But you have a poor person coming to the church. You have a rich person coming to the church. And what do you give to the rich person? Best seat in the house. What do you say to the poor person? You go sit over there. So we begin to to actually make distinctions in, in our churches based upon what people have or don't have or the influence they possess or don't, don't possess. Why is it? We've got to be careful. Why is it that our elder... I don't even like the word board, but I'll use it. Why are elder, why are elder boards filled with people who have money? Sometimes it's because they're just godly men and, and they've shown integrity and all the rest... But shouldn't we have some poor people on those elder boards too who love God and love their families and live exemplary lives? Why does it have to be rich people? Could it be that we're unjust in the way we're evaluating human beings? What must a man of God be? He must be hospitable. He cares about other people. He meets needs. He must love what is good. He's a lover of good. In the spiritual realm and the moral realm, it begins in his mind. It's found in his practices. It's it's displayed in his loyalties. He is devout. He is, I'm sorry, he's just. He's upstanding. He's upright. And even by common standards, he's a good citizen, a good servant of Christ in the world. It gets to how he treats people. It gets to how he makes decisions. Next, a man of God must be holy. 
must be holy. The word here in New American Standard is devout. Hasios is the word. Speaks of someone who is sincerely, truly godly. Godly. They really do love God. They don't just appear to. They really are concerned with His glory and honor. They don't just say they are. They really are held captive by His commands. They really are committed to living out in the Christian life what you profess to believe. The leaders of the church are to be godly men. They're to be holy men. This Greek word is often translated godly in the Septuagint. Psalm 4.3 says, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly. The Lord hears when I call to Him. Psalm 32 verse 6 says, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach Him. The word is used, this Greek word is used in Revelation 15 to refer to God Himself. It's translated holy. Revelation 15 verse 4, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? For You alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for you, your righteous acts have been revealed. So this is a godly person who is living a holy life, holy set apart. Right? Not perfect. None of us is perfect on this side of glorification. We're all in progress. We all sin. We're confessing sin, repenting of sin constantly. You are saved into a repenting life. But we are pursuing holiness. This is what marks men of God. The word is used of Jesus in Hebrews 7.26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, there's that word, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. This is what gets lost in the church when the church becomes pragmatic in its ministry, when it's driven by pragmatism. We forget that what we need in our leaders is holiness, And we substitute for it much lesser things. We replace holiness with attractiveness. He just, you know, he just has that look. He's tall, he's handsome, he handles himself well. Look at how natural his movements are on the platform. Just looks like the kind of guy you'd respect. Yeah, but is he holy? Does he love God? Talented. Oh, he's such a talented guy. This happens especially about Darby, thinking about the realm of music. This happens in music a lot. The guy's just so talented. But is he holy? Yeah, that song sounds beautiful, but I wonder, is he walking with the Lord? Man's so influential. Look at the position he holds in his company. Look at his influence in the community. Yeah, but is he holy? He's so zealous. He's so energetic. He's so enthusiastic. But zeal without knowledge is not good. He may be really zealous, but does he know the Bible? He may be really zealous, but does he love God? We want young people here. (laughs) Youthfulness. We replace holiness with youthfulness. I I do praise God, don't you, for young men, young women who are serving Him and loving Him. That's wonderful. But what we've done sometimes in the pragmatic age in which our churches are existing is we have minimized and we have minimized and we've put out to pasture older saints who have lived demonstrable lives of holiness. And we think that youthfulness can replace 
holiness. I say to our older people in our church all the time, retirement is not a biblical concept. I'm not talking about your job. I'm talking about the kingdom of God. The idea that somehow you spiritually retire. You know, there was a time I was really in there and working hard, but now it's time for the younger generation to come behind and they sort of take over the ministry and I'm just going to sit there and enjoy. Show me that in Scripture. No, we're responsible to serve until we die. Now, there may come a time that your physical nature gives out on you and you're just not able to do what you did before. We understand that, don't we? That's a reality that we see in Scripture. But what we don't see in Scripture is just some guy who still has the opportunity to serve, but he doesn't want to anymore because he put in his time. Where's that at in God's Word? Why would your church want to take experience and knowledge and proven lives and put them on the periphery of the church's ministry. I want to encourage and exhort the young men. You step into these roles that God provides for you. You grow into being the kind of men of God that we're talking about this weekend. But as you're growing into that, you have respect for the men who have come before you and they stand before you in the Lord. Go to the second chapter and learn how younger men ought to think about the older men, and how they ought to relate to them. And, and go to the second chapter, older men, and think about what you ought to be displaying and modeling. This is a healthy church where every, every age group is serving the Lord well. These men are to be devout. Last quality, self-controlled. Self-controlled, the idea there is self-restraint. Able to say no to yourself. Which will mean saying no to the flesh, saying no to sin, mortifying the flesh, choosing love for God, choosing love for others, saying no to emotions, impulses, desires, thinking that would dishonor God, selfish in nature. Say yes instead to what pleases God according to His Word. This is self-control. We can say this, faithful men are not self-indulgent people. Faithful men are not led about by their emotions or their impulses. Faithful men are not slaves to their appetites. They know what it is to say no to themselves. And this is what we have to do all along the way as we obey God. We have to say no to us. Can you do that? Can I do that? Verse Timothy 4, 7 says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather... Train yourself for godliness. Exercise yourself for godliness. This this takes thought and it takes effort. It takes discipline. I think especially we we, we lose this in our churches, the the manliness of the Christian life. Act like men, the Bible said. Paul uses illustrations of soldiers and farmers and boxers and runners. It takes effort. It takes self-discipline. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. How much energy in this culture do people put into their physical nature? Watch what I eat. 
I'm doing that, by the way, right now. You can pray for me. <laughs> I've got to watch what I eat. I've got to exercise again. In fact, I started exercising again like three or four days ago and doing squats and stuff. And so if you watch me waddling around here, I'm sore, all right? I'm hurting. It's good. It's good to exercise your physical nature. That's fine. But you know what? It's just going to last for a little while. How much effort are we putting into training ourselves for godliness? How much time do you spend in the gym versus the time you spend in the Bible? How much time do you spend in the gym versus the time you spend serving other people for Christ's sake, for the sake of the gospel? Because your body, like mine, you're going to get old, it's going to break down. But the inner man's being renewed day by day. And one day, praise God, we're going to have a new nature, a new physical nature that matches the new us. We're going to live forever in the forever day in the presence of our Savior. How much treasure are you laying up for that day? How much exercise are you giving to that end? Godly men are self-controlled men. So I just close by saying this. Character matters. Character matters. How does God prepare men for ministry? Well, He saves them and He gifts them. But then He goes to work on them. Men of God are not just engaged in ministry. They are the objects of ministry. God's working in them, on them. And in that work, character matters. It matters what you are at home. It matters. Your marriage matters. Raising of your children matters. It matters what you are in your personal life. It matters what you're not. And it matters what you are. And remember that all of this is what Christ insists on. This is what it means to say Jesus is Lord. It means we follow Him in these ways. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these encouragements that we've received this weekend. Thank you, Lord, for the truth. I pray that you would work in our hearts in such a way that we would desire these things. That we would want the good. Therefore, we would be able to recognize it and receive it and learn it and walk in it. Thank you for these men. Thank you, Lord, for their love for you. It's clear to me the way they listen that that they love you. And I just pray that you would increase their love for you. Increase mine. Help me, Lord, to be more of what you would have me to be. We join in asking this together. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.